We'll have just a moment for the kids' time. Um, this Thursday, we had what was sometimes called a minor festival, but sometimes was known as a major festival. I think for Roman Catholics for a long time, it was a holy day of obligation. I don't know for sure, but I think that's right. It was Ascension Day. And so we sang about that in the first hymn. That pretty much described Jesus' ascension and how he was taken from them, from the disciples in a cloud. And the disciples stood there looking up at him, thinking, well, he said he'd be coming back. I guess maybe they expected him back in three minutes, five minutes, who knows? But we are still waiting. And the disciples went back to Jerusalem and spent lots of time in the temple so that the Holy Spirit could fall on them, which we will observe next week. So we had Ascension Day on Thursday. And this Tuesday, we have another, what's called a minor festival. But I love it because it's really a beautiful, happy festival. And boy, do I think we need something happy right now. It's called the Festival of the Visitation. Have you ever heard of that? Nope. Heads are shaking. Nope. How many of you here in the congregation, raise your hands, have heard of the visitation? So we got work to do, don't we? Every May 31st, we celebrate the visitation. Now, since it's called the visitation, what do you think happened? I think probably there was a visit from somebody, right? I think that's it. Yep. And the cool part of this is, now, does anybody know? Pastor Tom can't answer. But the rest of us, who was visiting whom on the visitation? Adults, do we know? Jesus. Mary was visiting who? Jesus. Actually, Mary was visiting her kinswoman or her cousin, Elizabeth. And the amazing part, well, there's a lot of things amazing about this story. But these, <laughs> that's, that's okay. It's, it's a good guess. It's a good guess. Because Mary actually was, as we say, carrying Jesus. She was pregnant with the baby Jesus. She was maybe three months along and made a journey to her older cousin, who was more like six or seven months along. And when Mary walked in, the baby Elizabeth was carrying leaped for joy. Elizabeth could feel the movement of the baby inside of her. And that baby was John the Baptist. And so here we have this young woman. She could have maybe been easily 14, 15, 16 years old, our Lord's blessed mother, visiting her elderly cousin who was supposed to be too old to have babies. But Elizabeth, her cousin or her kinswoman, was actually expecting uh, the person who was eventually named John the Baptist. And Mary was so happy that she said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my savior. She sang the Magnificat, which is something that we sing on, on Sundays sometimes and often at Vespers evening services. So it was an incredibly unusual thing. This young woman who is carrying the baby who would be part of the new life in Christ, the Greek scriptures. And Elizabeth, this older woman, who had within her John the Baptist, who was the last of what we would call the Old Testament or Hebrew prophets. 
And these two women met together for what must have been an incredibly joyous, joyous time. And we're told in the scripture that Mary stuck around there for quite some time before she returned to her own home. So I love to think about the visitation because it's a beautiful, happy time. And it's two of the most important women in our church's history. Maybe that's why, since it's two women, we haven't done a very good job observing it. If it had been two young men, an old man, maybe we would have. But we can make up for it from here on out. And always think every May 31st, we observe the time when our Lord's blessed mother, as a young woman carrying the baby Jesus within her, visited her elderly cousin or kinswoman who had within her John the Baptist, the old covenant and the new covenant. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story. And as Paul Harvey would say, so now you know the rest of the story. That's right. Absolutely. Yes, I see your hand. So is Jesus John the Baptist's cousin? That's a wonderful question. Is Jesus John the Baptist's cousin? You know, I have thought about that a lot. At least they were some kind of relation. And I've often thought if, if, just let's say if, um, Mary and Elizabeth were first cousins and had the same grandma, then their babies, Jesus and John the Baptist, would have been like second cousins. And great grandma, if it had been now, today, great grandma would say, I want to show you pictures of my great grandchildren. (laughs) This one's, this one's John the Baptist. And this one, this one is going to be the savior of the world. That would be hard for anybody else to top with their grandchildren pictures, wouldn't it? Yep, that's right. That's right. It's a joyous time on Tuesday, the 31st, the visitation of our Lord's blessed mother to her cousin or to her kinswoman, Elizabeth. So blessings to you. And let's remember, see if we can remember to try to celebrate these two wonderful women on Tuesday. And you have a graduation on Tuesday. That's even more to celebrate. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Thanks for listening to this long story. It's a happy one. Yeah, let's get happy while we can (laughs) and observe every happy occasion that we can. Remember last Sunday, jubilate, rejoice. We got enough of the other stuff. We have to move our thoughts to the happy material when we can. I don't often do this, but before turning our attention to the gospel, I I have a few brief comments that relate to the events of the last week and the last two weeks, really, which we all know about. First, it does us no good to dwell, I think, on the wrenching sadness, shock, and disbelief which we all experienced and which are all acute now for the people in Uvalde, Texas and still in Buffalo, New York. Rather, when that sad, wrenching stuff comes into our thinking, we must be moved to prayer and to action. 
There isn't much that we can do. I share in the helplessness that some of you feel. However, I would suggest, as I suggested over at St. Paul, Oakland, the Sunday after the Sandy Hook massacre, I would suggest if you'd like, after coming up to communion, that you light a candle. It's a small enough thing that we can do, signifying the prayers that we have for all people who are so grieved. I also could not find any card that was appropriate for this occasion. And so um, over in the parish hall, before coffee, there is just a piece of paper for you to affix your signatures. And those of you on Zoom, Ruth Ann is going to have Lois Ann's email address for you. Lois Ann said, you can email your signature to her. I will handwrite them on this letter that I'm going to send. And I'm going to send a note with your signatures on it to St. Philip's Episcopal Church in Uvalde, Texas. I went on their website and they said, um, St. Philip's is known as the church who helps people. I thought, okay, they've got their work cut out for them. And so I want to send them a letter from us, letting them know they're in our prayers. Those are two small things we can do. Now, we don't want to concentrate on the wrenching sadness because that will come to us often enough. But it might do some good for us to think about the whole idea of anger and how it has come to permeate our society. Over and over again, outrage has been worn like some kind of a virtue. This community is outraged. That group is outraged. And indeed, anger can be a mobilizing force, we hope, to the fierce compassion, the fierce compassion which can give rise to justice and walking humbly with our other fellow human beings. And sometimes it has given rise to that fierce compassion. Anger is intimately related to our fight or flight response. And if our threat response system is unregulated, which we have seen examples of in these last two weeks, the result can be disaster. In Eastern philosophy, anger is one of the three poisons which can turn toxic even our closest relationships. In our Christian tradition, wrath is one of the seven deadly sins. And it's not deadly because God's gonna get us for it. It's deadly because wrath and anger can poison parts of ourselves and because anger can poison our relationships. Of all emotions, Anger tends to be the most salient, the most observable, the most noticeable by others. Think of how an angry, raised voice at a restaurant, for instance, will silence the rest of the diners for a moment. Chronic anger has within it a sense of helplessness or futility. And I think we saw that operating perhaps in Uvalde. In terms of violence against the self or suicide, thwarted belongingness, and people, this is important, thwarted belongingness and perceived burdensomeness are noted to be two of the three major causes that move people towards 
death by suicide. So can you see how feeling like a burden to someone else or feeling like you never belong can also be turned outward in senseless anger and destruction towards others? It's a lot to think about. Yes, anger is a biopsychosocial issue. And I've talked with some of you about this before. Biopsychosocial. It's biological. It relates to overall health and mental health. And I've seen people with chronic rage and self-injurious, horrible self-injurious behaviors turn their lives around once they get their serotonin levels up where they need to be, and once they've learned some self-soothing strategies. Yes, it is a psychological issue with an external locus of control that I've talked with you about before, often being associated with lashing out, with free-floating hostility, and with intermittent explosivity. And yes, depression can often present as rage and explosivity, particularly in men, but sadly, it doesn't require a Y chromosome for rageaholic behaviors. Yes, it is a social issue, anger is, when the relationships that are intended to support us wound us instead, when we are trapped in cycles of abuse and neglect with no perceived response that we can make in order to escape. And if we consider spirituality to be intimately connected to relationship, which I believe it is, then this type of toxic anger, horrific toxic anger that we've seen is also a spiritual issue that needs to be addressed in spiritual ways. Anger is an understandable response to oppression and victimization, both from culture and from other individuals. But we need to take steps to identify toxic anger and toxic hostility for the dangers that they are. It's not just that somebody has a vile temper. It's dangerous. Eastern philosophy tells us anger is like a barb with a honeyed tip. Think the end of a fish hook dipped in sugar. Anger can be positively and negatively reinforced, as we say in behavioral psychology, and it can thus be dangerously, dangerously seductive and addictive. Be alert then, my siblings, for everything that is surrounding us now, which seeks to exploit our rage and our anger in order to divide, incite, and dehumanize somebody else. Don't be seduced by those who would exclude. Rather, here's the assignment. Rather, work for inclusion, compassion, and the loving kindness that our Lord came to teach us. And as St. Paul says, be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Grace to you and peace from God, our loving creator, and from the Son, the redeemer of the world, in and through the Holy Spirit, who is our advocate, our counselor, our 
consoler and our sanctifier. Grace and peace to all of you. Amen. For these last three Sundays after Easter, we have been considering the final discourse, Jesus, the farewell speech of a dying person to the friends he loves. Jesus and the disciples are still in the upper room before they walk east across the valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. The supper is finished and Jesus begins to speak. John reminds us so beautifully, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. After Judas Iscariot leaves the table going out into the night, John tells us, Jesus gives the new commandment that we love one another. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. It's not a short-term objective. Then Jesus reminds us what we need to hear. Let not the heart of us be troubled. Jesus is leaving, but the advocate, the counselor, the consoler, and the comforter will be sent, who will be with us always. And she will remind the disciples, and she will remind us of everything Jesus has said. She will have reminders for us, the Holy Spirit will. She will have consolation. And yes, she will have those questions that we've heard now for the last three Sundays. She will have questions for us like, who are we really? Who is our neighbor? To what are we called? Beautiful questions with different kinds of answers for differing kinds of contexts. Then once again, Jesus says, let not the heart of us be troubled, neither be afraid in the world. We will face persecution, but Jesus says, take courage, I have overcome the world. I have conquered the world. And that phrase, take courage, could just as easily be translated as cheer up, cheer up. We have one who has overcome the world. Then this beautiful final discourse, it really needs to be read aloud. I know some of you have, and then sat with in meditation. This beautiful final discourse becomes what is known as the high priestly prayer. This audible prayer of Jesus in front of his disciples is in three sections. First, Jesus prays to the Father, giving thanks for the unity of that relationship. Then Jesus prays out loud for his disciples who are surrounding him there in the upper room. Finally, Jesus prays for us, for us, for those who will come to believe and trust because of the witness of those disciples. This high priestly prayer is always the text for the last Sunday of Eastertide. And when we are in the Luke cycle, the portion of that prayer that we hear is where Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for us and for all who have come to believe and to trust. Just this week, I heard kind of a sweet story about this kind of prayer. A very devout mom was raising her three kids and she had homeschooled them. But the day came when the oldest son was going to go to junior high on the next morning. Some of us remember that acute anxiety. That evening, 
This devout mom prayed as she always did with all of her kids at bedtime, finishing with the oldest son. When his prayers were done, he said to his mother, mom, I want you to pray for me. And the mother was a little bit puzzled and, and she replied, but I've, I've just been praying with you. And he said, yes, but now I want you to pray for me like you do when you come into our rooms and you think we're asleep and you pray for us. What a comfort and joy it must have been for these children, perhaps half asleep, half awake, perhaps sleeping soundly, to have the presence of their mother in their rooms, having prayed with them and now praying for them. What an unspeakably tender, beautiful, and strengthening experience for those kids. So it was for the disciples who so often seem to want to doze off when Jesus is praying. But this time in the upper room, they see him, they hear him as he prays specifically for them. And then, then we have the privilege of overhearing Jesus as he prays for us. I ask not only on behalf of these, the disciples, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. And remember that word that is so often translated as believe could also just as well be translated as to trust. Remember fiducia? Remember that story? So it's not just the testimony and witness of the disciples. It is the testimony and witness of us, sisters and brothers, siblings of us, everyone here and everyone who is gathered around every altar of Christ's church. And the key question is, to what will we testify? To what will we testify? Salvation doesn't just refer to a life that we can't imagine after the passing of these bodies. Salvation, as we've heard before, can also be translated as healing. So salvation and healing are restoring wholeness to humanity here and now, as well as there and then. Salvation and healing have to do with truly being one with God and one with one another. Oneness and wholeness. In the first chapter of John's gospel, John reminds us grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, John says. It is God, the only son, who is close to the father's heart, who has made God known. As my dad used to say, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Earlier that evening, before washing the disciples' feet, Jesus had said, for I have not spoken on my own, but for the father who has sent me, who has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Jesus and the Father are one. One commentator observed, I think correctly, that the words of this high priestly prayer kind of swirl around us 
and are not really for us to know cognitively, but rather to experience. And the idea is for us to experience not an intellectual thought, but a relationship. It's not a thought. It's a relationship. There is no Lord's Prayer in John's Gospel. Therefore, perhaps this high priestly prayer is another model for how we should pray. Praying, staying, abiding, remaining, remember? With the words of Jesus. Staying with the words of Jesus. Another theologian had a similar thought when she wrote, here Jesus speaks of and requests this oneness and refers to the mutual indwelling of himself and God and of us with him in God. Ten times in five verses. The purpose, Jesus says, of this perfection of oneness is not only an experience of divine love for us in our communion with God, and one another, the purpose is also beyond us. The oneness of the Father and Jesus is synonymous with love in the Gospel of John. That oneness of the Father and the Son in the Gospel of John is the same as love. Indeed, Augustine would write that the Holy Spirit herself is the movement of that love between the Father and the Son. It's a beautiful concept. Our love for God and for one another becomes then an offering in and for the world to experience the love through which all creation has come into being. That's what we want for the world. That's one of the major reasons why we gather together. And defining this love just a bit more clearly, this theologian continues and she says, this love clearly cannot depend on feelings of attraction, desire, affection, or even liking. Rather, this love is a behavior-shaping attitude towards the world, which is both a gift we cannot manufacture and the choice, the choice to live into the promises of a gift that has already been given to us. Remember that little Sunday school verse that some of us had to memorize. It's the first one I remember memorizing. We love him because he first loved us. And so we can also become more loving. How? How? By choosing, choosing deliberately, thoughtfully, repetitively in and through the Holy Spirit, choosing to follow Jesus' model and his teaching about what love is. And that behavior-shaping attitude is incarnate. It becomes real in tending, feeding, bearing witness, and breaking barriers for love breaking those societal barriers we set up among ourselves and even those barriers within our own hearts and mental constructions, barriers, some of which we may think make us rightly religious, but they do not make us loving. This love, 
incarnate is the substance of Jesus' glory. And it is what Jesus wants us and the world to know. I'm saying it again. This love incarnate is the substance of Jesus' glory. And it is what Jesus wants us and the world to know. How's that for an offer you can't refuse? And so this last Sunday of Easter, this last of the seven Sundays of Easter tide, begins where the gospel began, the word with God. Jesus making God known so that the world may know that every soul and all creation has come from and has a place in the creative, inclusive, outspreading love of God. Let us pray. Gracious and loving one, almighty and all merciful, may our joy be complete in you as your joy was complete in Jesus. May we be sent into the world as you sent Jesus into the world. As Jesus sanctified himself, may we be sanctified through him. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen.